Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Sometimes when I'm driving on the road at night, I see two headlights coming toward me fast, and I have this sudden impulse to turn the wheel quickly head on into the oncoming car. I can anticipate the explosion, the sound of the shattering glass, the flames rising out of the flowing gasoline. I'm about to tell y'all a rom-com-ish story that is... I don't know if I've ever watched a rom-com that's made me feel so uncomfortable. Uh, well, this entire uh, person that we'll be kind of focusing on uh, makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah. It has been for a long time. Um, it's yeah. just now more in the open. But yeah, it's. Uh, I also watched the movie you're going to cover just because I had never seen it either. Mm. I'm actually like not a huge fan, even though, you know, I'm such a like, yeah. I adore New York and I love it so much. And New York is my my heart. Yeah. I, Woody Allen was never like right. something for me that I was like, oh, I just love this I guy. F- you know, I feel OK. So, yeah. So we're covering um, this week on Rum Crime. Hi, everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm Vanya. Uh, we are covering um, two part. Annie Hall, uh, mm-hmm. it's it's coined a ner- a nervous r- romantic comedy, and we're pairing that with the story of the sexual allegations uh, brought by the adopted daughter of Woody Allen that was um, covered in a documentary called Allen versus Pharaoh or Allen v Pharaoh on HBO came out I believe at the beginning of 2021. That's right. And so I'm gonna kind of take you all through what I learned mm-hmm. watching that documentary. But we're gonna start with some I guess lighter. You yeah, know, let's it, start yeah. with Annie Hall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think probably you know maybe you've seen this movie, maybe you haven't. It was. I think it was just so old, Av, that it's hard. Unless you're in film class or like are kind of like a cinephile, it's you probably if you're younger, you probably haven't checked out Annie Hall. Right. Um, I I hadn't seen it either. And I do love, I like classic movies. So it was, it was, God, it was definitely hard to, to watch because it was, you know, filmed in 1977. Obviously the allegations have come out much more recently than like to present date. So I was trying to put myself in that headspace because I love a rom-com. You guys know I love a rom-com. I know you do. So this was tough. It was it was really tough. And it is layered, whatever. But okay, so it actually won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1978. Did you know that? I did. Yeah. But only because I they kind of go over a lot of his filmography in the documentary oh, that I watched. Okay. And then in then also um 
Well, actually, so so many film buffs absolutely like love this movie. New York, older New Yorker people love this movie. New Yorkers probably that are not that old. But I will say I never saw it just before. But despite who made it, it was actually entertaining to me-ish. It did not have many of the rom-com qualities that I love. Like there wasn't a lot of joy in this film. It was... Right. It's all neuroses, right? Which is kind of a a through line in most of his stuff. Yeah. Which we all have that. And I think that's partly why people love this film because it was anxiety ridden and very self-loathing. But the character Annie Hall, played by the absolutely lovely and adorable Diane Keaton, was a light Mm -hmm. in this dark hellhole of, you know, Woody Allen. Um, And she also won Best Actress that year. Yeah, and her wardrobe is amazing. Oh, yeah. And she, there's so, it's funny because I love costumes and all that. And she actually dressed herself in that first scene when we see her, not the first scene we see her, but the first scene where they meet. And she, oh. when she wears the iconic tie with the mm-hmm. hat. Okay. So she, so she picked that out? She picked it out. And I want to say, like, was it not Ralph Lauren, but some, some famous designer who did it, who did the costumes took or who built a jacket for it took credit and then the costume designer hated it at first and then took credit but whatever it is you can tell by the way diane keaton dresses it is mm-hmm. so her style and yeah, she I still dresses it. like that. yes she does yeah. and she's so cute in that scene oh where she's God. like la di da and she's so wonderfully awkward she is and she's you know they i guess in real life she really is one of those people who can't really finish the sentence and that's kind of and two years prior to the filming she and woody dated and lived together and yes um but um he was actually dating two 16 year olds at the time we'll get to that later Mm -hmm. and that is a real fact so anywho z this love story is told out of chronological order and it starts with 40 year old stand-up comedian alvy singer played by woody allen monologuing to the camera like breaking the fourth, fourth wall and he's like two elderly women are at a catskills mountain resort and one of them says boy, the food at this place is really terrible. And the other one says, yeah, I know, such small portions. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life. Full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over much too quickly. And he goes on to talk about more that, you know, just like misery and sadness in his life. Um, he goes on to tell us that he is turning turned 40 and he's worried about aging and is having, having sort of a crisis. He thinks, he thinks he's having a crisis, I don't know. The film starts at the end of the story where he's broken up with Annie. And he says, Annie and I broke up and I still can't get my mind around that. You know, I keep sifting the pieces of the relationship through my mind and examining my life and trying to figure out where did the screw up come? You know, a year ago we were in love. And it's funny, I'm not a morose type. I'm not a depressive character, which is hilarious because he definitely is. is. Um, And though I think it's questionable and to me, he seems to really hate the shit out of himself through all of this. Because that's one thing that I found. I was like, this guy hates himself. He Mm -hmm. he like, throughout the movie, he loves sex. And he hates himself so much that he can't really put any other attention. He's obsessed with himself. That's my opinion. And I know people, uh, I mean, like, cinephile people love this movie, even with the whole allegations. Like, but I, I see holes. That's just me. Yeah. Even to Woody Allen, this wasn't his favorite movie that he did. Um, so we cut to him growing up as a child underneath the roller coaster in Coney Island. And I will say, so we, we go all the way back to 1942 in this, but I do love all the shots of New York. It's great. Oh, yeah. Even the fakey, fakish Coney Island <laughs> shot. His dad apparently ran the bumper cars and that's how he used to go mm-hmm. down there and get his aggression out. 
but so funny. I know. It's so funny. It's it's really clever. It is. And we see him at primary school where he forcibly sneaks a kiss from a girl he's sitting next to. And this is like played by a child actor. The teacher screams at him. And all of a sudden, we see adult Woody Allen in, in the class. And um, the teacher says, you should be ashamed of yourself. And he says, why? I was just expressing a healthy sexual curiosity. I'm just like, that is so messed up. It's like he's allowed to treat others and like girls, women with no respect and get away with it. Like, like mm-hmm. he's the only one. What about my curiosity? I was just trying to be curious. Like, yeah, that's Mm-mm. no means no. Hashtag me too. I will fuck him up if I see him in person. <laughs> Anyways, then we see the first scene with Annie. And this is, um, you know, so we see the breakup scene. She arrives late to the movies. They argue. He's very mad because, you know, he, he they're two minutes late to the movie, so he refuses to go in. And she's like, just leave me alone. I'm in a bad mood. I have a headache. And he says, you are in a bad mood. You must be starting your period soon. Um, What? Kill him. I Kill know. Him. This is where the movie should have turned into my favorite genre, a the, horror movie. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Because I felt... Such rage. If someone says that to you, then they're just trying to be mean. And I, I think a lot of the way he talks to her is very, he lightly puts anybody he talks to down. Just kind of mm-hmm. like, and I don't know, you know, you know what keeps coming into my mind, Avrin, is Louis C.K. loves Woody, Woody Allen. And mm-hmm. I used to love Woody, Louis C.K. because... I love comedy and all this until yeah, you know. no, he used to be one of my very favorite stand-up comedians, and and I that was and I loved his show. Truly Louis. devastating. Yep, it was great, and it, it does have a lot of Woody. Like so many people are trying to clone Woody's uh, style here because he. The thing about this movie that I think people went gaga for was the slicing of reality. You know, in so many different ways. Like he talks to the right. camera, breaking the fourth wall. There are moments where we see subtitles when after. Annie and him first meet they they're playing tennis together and there's mm-hmm. there's a whole bit about do you want to lift and it's cu- it's a cute you know whatever they go back to her apartment um and they're on the you know outdoor gr- garden space in New York I'm like by the way she paid $400 for that apartment I'm like that's an amazing apartment oh my god how come we never got to have I mean our places were cool but we never got to live in the city really well we did we lived in Harlem but yeah. you know what I mean like it's a movie, guys. We didn't have garden space. Exactly. <laughs> but in but that... this is also the 70s. Exactly. So inflation, that apartment now is probably like $2,400 Oh, I mean, no, it's got to be more. I mean, I bet that place is yeah. like five, five grand. And it's oh like so tiny. Um, but maybe not after COVID. Who knows? Yeah. But in, the, in this moment, we see them outside and, you know, we see subtitles come on to the screen. So we're hearing... The subtitles are their inner thoughts, which is really clever. So mm-hmm. essentially, he just wants to see her naked and have sex with her. And he and she's worried that he thinks that she's dumb. And so that's which what becomes kind of like the crux of their issues, right? Is yeah. like she's convinced that he won't get serious about her because he doesn't think she's smart enough exactly. for him. Exactly. And he is convinced that she has sexual issues exactly. when really it's him that has clear sexual issues. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and then there's another crazy like 
you know, messing with reality moment later on where we go into animation when Alvy talks about his first crush in a Disney movie. It wasn't Snow White. It was the Wicked Queen. And then it flips to a cartoon of him and the Wicked Queen and she's being sort of mean. And he's like, you must be in your period. You're in such a mad mood. He says it again. And the Wicked Mm -hmm. Queen says, I'm a cartoon character. I don't get my period, you freaking idiot or something like that. (laughs) But one of my favorite film techniques that they used in this is this split screen situation where so there's a part in the in the film where he starts paying for her therapy for her analyst they call it analyst in this film he sees an Mm -hmm. analyst she sees an analyst and she's getting better and and honestly one of the things i love about this film is the more and more she goes to her therapy she finds strength to leave him pretty much she's like i don't want to be treated like that but there's this beautiful scene where it works as a dialogue but they're each answering and talking to their therapist and it's in a split screen and it's just it's it's really quite delightful to watch so you know the dialogue's all mashed up between the dual scenes yeah but i still hate him um (laughs) and then there's this other scene where she so they're having like some sexual problems and he has a whole thing where in the beginning you know he likes her you know they're talking about they're walking along the river and it's dark and he's like i love you're so sexy you know i love that i can touch you anywhere and you're you're you know titillated by it you know and it's essentially because she well that might not be the only reason it's definitely in the beginning of their relationship and she's giggling and that's when she says i love you and he and she's like do you love me and he's like well i i i it's too strong it's not strong enough word i i love you i love you you know so he doesn't actually say i love you but anyways you know, part of the reason she was always so titillated is because she always smelled grass before they had sex. Mm-hmm. And so, and I love they use the word grass a lot in this. Um, but there's a scene later on fractured within the film of, you know, the decline of the relationship and she, he wants to bone. And she's like, oh, Albie, I'm not really, not tonight, blah, blah, blah. And he's such a baby about it and such a little bitch. And, and then something like, okay she gives in and she's like wants to smoke weed before and he's like don't don't smoke weed you know it makes me feel like i'm not doing my job i'm not it okay so but in the scene it's so cool because she finally gives in and she leaves her body so you see her get up from her body a second annie sits there and talks to them having sex it doesn't really end up working out the sex but mm-hmm. i just thought that was a really cool moment as well um so yeah Oh, oh, and now at some point in the beginning, we talk about his ex-wives because he's 40. He has two ex-wives because they're talking about sexual. Annie and him are talking about not perform, like not her, her not wanting to do it. And so we see two. She's like, you've had two ex-wives. You, you understand how that goes. And we see two different experiences of that. Um, what his first wife is played by uh, Carol Kane. And her name's Allison, and she is absolutely blithe, like lovely in this film. Her hair, oh my god, her eyes, she's so good. Her demeanor, she's good in everything she does. Yeah. Oh my gosh! And you know, I feel like we see her be a flighty person a lot. She's just so grounded and stunning in this. And she's working as like a stage manager before he's about to go on stage to do a comedy set or whatever. And he goes, "Say something encouraging," before he walks on stage, and she's like, "I think you're cute." And then we cut to their breakup scene where he's not interested in having sex with her. So, they, right. yeah. And now we get to see a cute scene during the good times of he and Annie's relationships. Oh, my God. Out in the Hamptons. And <laughs> they're cooking lobster. And this is this is a cute moment. I still can't stand him. I, I could never be with somebody like him. I would strangle him in his sleep. <laughs> but they, it's a cute scene. Nobody wants to touch the lobster. Nobody wants to cook a live lobster. It's funny. She takes right, they're like crawling on the floor. Yeah. And it's like yeah. it's nice. We do see that. 
Um, another ex-wife is uh, a very New Yorker girl. Both of these uh, wives were like New Yorkers. The other one was like this very intellectual one and she didn't want to have sex with him. And he's just obsessed with sex. It's crazy. Even in, their, even in the um, split, the split uh, psychiatric scene, this, his psychiatrist says, well, how, how often do you have sex? He's like, hardly at all, three times a week. And this same question we assume was asked to Annie. And she's like, all the time, three times a week. It's really funny. Yeah. So we see another scene. So Annie joins him on the road going to like a university to do a stand-up festival or whatever. And she's like, you're really good. I think I'm, I think I'm getting some of the references or whatever. Boo. He's so stupid. Mm. But they're close to where she grew up, which is in Chippewa, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And he meets her family. And the grandma is anti-Semitic. And so when he when she looks at him, we see him in like full Hasidic Jewish outfit. Mm. That's how he thinks she's looking at him. And you know, the family is just oh not, not his favorite thing. But I love Christopher Walken. Yes! Oh my like God. just the way he looks at him during the whole dinner scene. He is like, so intense. He plays Dwayne, so her intense. little brother or big brother. I don't really know. Probably little. Yeah. And he's really beautiful. He was so, so pretty back in the day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's so young. So young. And for a moment, he's alone with uh, Alvi. And he says, um, I want to tell you this because as an artist, I think you'll understand. Sometimes <laughs> when I'm driving on the road at night, I see two headlights coming toward me fast and I have this sudden impulse to turn the wheel quickly head on into the oncoming car. I can anticipate the explosion, the sound of the shattering glass, the flames rising out of the flowing gasoline. <laughs> He's like, I got to get out of here. And the next scene oh. is him, is Dwayne driving them to the airport. And it's, right. it's really funny to me because, and I think this is, He's full of anxiety. Us as the audience are laughing our butts off because we know that this guy might just go nuts and kill the, kill them all. And Annie is in the backseat, just happy-go-lucky, happy and content as can be. And you can just feel Alvi's sort of disdain for her happiness and contentness. And I think right. that is like their relationship. Like I think maybe he wants to be like that, but then he hates it. And I just think she's wonderful. And I'm glad I'm going to spoil her right now, but she gets out in the end, but we will get to that. It's also interesting in that scene, the dinner scene, doesn't he kind of talk about how like her, basically her family looks so healthy and so happy and then they juxtapose like a dinner scene where yes. his dad and mom and like probably his grandma, they're like going over everybody that the, in their family and friends that have died or have been diagnosed with health issues. That's and more like my They family. all look like sweaty <laughs> and unhealthy and it was just, it's interesting because there's also, he's clearly kind of. I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but he's he's got a a, lo a lot of feelings about like Gentiles. Is that the I right guess word? So, like yeah. non-Jewish people? Because um, you don't get the sense, really, other than the grandma does definitely look at him with some funny looks, right? And she, you know, and Annie even says, "My grandma, Grammy Hall, is an anti-Semite." But um, but like the rest of her family, her parents seem very sweet and they're very nice to him and supportive and yeah, and they're all friendly. And it's funny that he finds that mm -hmm. like obnoxious. I see what you're saying. It's another split screen moment where the dialogue mm -hmm. absolutely works together. It's fantastic. But I see, yeah, it's almost that like he resents his family for being so. It's not like he wants the other, but he's he's just he's just perturbed the entire time. Yeah, he's just an angry fella. 
oh, one fun fact about Annie is she wants to be a singer. And the first time they go out, she's like, oh, I'm just doing this show. And she didn't really want him to go. She had to audition. And she goes and she sings, it had to be you. By the way, her, her voice is really lovely. Yeah. I, mean, I didn't remember that she could sing. I, I and then I remembered either. that I think she sings in a couple other movies, but like Bette Midler's in that with her. So how are you supposed to be like, I can sing too. Yeah. You know, she did a good job. <laughs> yeah, Af- she did. But afterwards, they're going to, to have some food or something. And he's like, give me a kiss. It was very unromantic. He's like, give me a kiss. What? Well, let's just get it out of the way. We'll get the anxieties out of the way and we'll have a nice dinner. We'll be able to digest our food that way. And then we won't be nervous about it. It's just so... I feel like he's a sleazy... All I could think of is like how he must be in real life sexually. I know it's gross because of all the allegations you're about to tell us about, but... It's just he's like a little smarmy to me. Well, it's just, like you know, again, it's because of what we know now. Obviously, like when you first when people first saw this movie, when it first came out in theaters, nothing that we now know was actually had even happened yet. Other than obviously he had dated very young women, which is inappropriate, wrong and most likely illegal, um, depending on how old, how young they were. But, you know, to watch this without that. In your mind, you know, it's it's still like a man who has like some serious like sexual issues mm-hmm. and is like sex obsessed, self obsessed. Yes. He kind of weaponizes it. He saw he like, you know, he weaponizes like he's anything that she does to actually like have pleasure. Yeah. During sex, he wants to take it away from her and pays for her to go to a, a shrink to fix her sexual problem. <laughs> and it's not a problem. Yeah. She likes to smoke a little weed before sex. You should try it, Woody Allen. Also, or no, don't. No. Never have sex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So we, and then we cut to like it later in the movie, but we go to Annie Hall singing again. And at this point, she's at a club that's like everyone's feeding, listening to off, off her, you know, just like she's so good. And she has this beautiful black tux on with this red carnation. And the song mm-hmm. is gorgeous. And when she's done, you know, he, he, he says, they're sitting at the bar and he says, you were sensational. I told you if you stuck to it, you'd be great. Okay. me. And then Paul Simon plays a character called Tony Lacey, who's like a label owner or whatever. And he comes up with a bunch of beautiful like model women and is like, hey, you, I'd love to get together. You really like your sound. Is anyone representing you? Uh, do you want to go to a party? And Woody, or sorry, Alvy goes, Oh, we have a thing. And you could tell that Annie Hall is like, oh, I want to go. But I mean, this is where I think screw him on like a major level because she's like, oh, yeah, the the thing, the thing. And Paul Simon's character is like, well, if you're ever out on the other side of the coast, let me know. It's like this is something that could have... made her career better. He he's just so self-absorbed. So that's that made me mad. Right, I, like an opportu- a potential career opportunity. Yeah. He just doesn't want to go. Exactly. He he doesn't like he doesn't like to be around people. He's like, "Let's just stay home and play hide the salami." Actually, he says that in another scene. I'm like, "Gross. If someone said, "Let's play hide the salami," I'd be like, "That doesn't get me off, buddy." Yeah, that doesn't work for nope. me. No, thank you. <laughs> you can go hide the salami elsewhere. Exactly. And then we kind of cut to a scene where guess what? They're heading to LA and they're, they're going to check everything out. He actually is supposed to be uh, presenting for an award show and Annie's with him and they see his buddy, he calls him Max, but it's like his name is Rob, um, who has a TV show and he's in the, in like the booth and 
the guy is like putting on canned laughter to the show he's in. He's like, more here. And he's, he's just like disgusted with the canned laughter and just disgusted with LA and during Christmas time and so much, so much hatred towards the LA, which listen, New York is amazing and radical, but like LA is pretty fantastic too. And they end up going to a party at Tony Lacey's via max. It was like not meant to be, or, you know, it wasn't something planned. Um, and then they're on the plane coming home and she's thinking, oh, I, I, I don't want to go on with this relationship, but it'll kill him if I, if I break up with him. And then you hear, this is in her mind. And then you hear his mind go, this isn't really working, but it'll, it'll break her apart if I do this. And he says, Annie, and she goes, I think we should break up or whatever. And they do. But of course he later is like, Oh, what have I done? I made him a, I made a terrible mistake. But wait, back on the in the plane, one thing he says, our you know our relationship is like a shark; it has to constantly move forward or it dies. What we have on our hands here is a dead shark. I do like a shark reference. I know. <laughs> and then we see him with a different girl. It's the same exact scene with the lobster in. I'm assuming they're in the Hamptons. And this girl is like not into it, like not doesn't find him amusing at all. She's like, you're a man. Just grab, you know, you're a grown man. You should be able to handle a lobster or whatever. And she's a funny <laughs> actor. She's kind of a nobody. But I, I liked I liked that scene. So at this point, he goes back to L.A. because he wants to see Annie and he wants to try to make it work. And they meet at this like vegan restaurant um, that he the whole time he's making fun of people. It's like he's like everybody in L.A. wears white. Is everybody in the same cult? And then he and then he orders alfalfa sprouts and mashed yeast. I'm like, okay, buddy, we that's like, just shut up, you know. Mashed yeast. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know. Um, and then he says, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I think we should get married. And she's like, oh, Alfie, come on. So she's not having that. She's grown. She's better. She's happier. And he, she's like, no, I'm, we're friends. I want to remain friends. And he's like, so what are you saying? You're not going to come back to New York with me? And then she's like, yeah, no. So she goes and he gets in his car that he had rented, which he's a horrible driver, which by the way, in the beginning of the movie, he's like, you're the scariest driver I've ever sat in with. And he gets in a huge accident, like probably a four car accident. And I'm not sure why, but he goes to jail for it. That That's, I'm like, okay, so I don't really get it. But Max, his buddy comes to pick him up. And Alvi says, I've, I got a feeling I got you at a bad time. I heard a high-pitched squealing. <laughs> and he goes, twins, 16-year-olds. Can you imagine the mathematical possibilities of that? And I was like, ew. So he was having sex with two, his buddy was having sex with two twin 16-year-olds. And the guy's like definitely in his 40s, maybe 50. It's just like, Gross. what the actual, like, it's just sucks. Because I can't imagine doing that when I was 16, it would definitely, I would definitely have had to be coerced or forced. It's, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to judge, but it made me so, so uncomfortable. Yeah. Then he's back in New York and he's rehearsing a play that he wrote, which is essentially the movie that we just watched. However, in the last line of the play, she says, I'm moving back to New York. I love you. So she, he changed the ending. Right, he wrote, he wrote the ending he'd hoped to have. And he says, he breaks the fourth wall and looks at the camera and says, what do you want? It was my first play. And he says, I did see Annie years later in New York. And they have lunch together and catch up. And he says, 
later. It reminds me of that old joke. You know, a guy walks into a psychiatrist's office and says, hey, doc, my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. Then the doc says, why don't you turn him in? Then the guy says, I would, but I need the eggs. I guess that's how I feel about relationships. They're totally crazy, irrational, and absurd, but we keep going through it because we need the eggs. I think that means to me that Woody Allen or Alvy doesn't understand what relationships are. But in in another the other side of that coin and sort of the whole theme I think of this movie is that even though a relationship doesn't work, it's still beautiful. It still holds a good place in your heart and your memory. Right. So I li- it was still important. It was, yeah. I like that. I do. But yeah, so that's my yeah, that's my uh, that's, thing. That's your your recap of Annie Hall. Yeah, it's it's interesting cuz you know, one of the things that I couldn't help because I watched that today and I spent the last couple of days watching the documentary series. And there's a couple of notable like similarities in terms of when he asks uh, Annie to move in with him, but insists that she keeps her apartment like he'll even pay for it. And he's like, it's like a life life raft for us, you know, because we're not going to get married. We're not going to do all of this stuff. And it's that's an actual thing that he did with uh, Mia Farrow. In their relationship, they were together for like 13 years, but always maintained separate residences. Did did they live um, together or they? I mean, they they were together a lot. So like he would stay at her place or vice versa. Um, but he, he, they always had their own separate ho- residences wow. and they never married. So just little things like that where I was like, oh, that's like a real And thing he him. says that he this is not like his work is not autobiographical, but it right. clearly is. Like he was dating two twi- two sixteen year olds. They weren't twins, but he was dating right. them at the same time. Probably he had some fantasy about putting them together and doing them. And I'm assuming that you know Annie Hall really is Diane Keaton, and yeah. it's the relationship that he that he probably at the time when he wrote the movie thought like that's the woman that I'm supposed to be with, yeah. and because of who I am and because of you know how I am, I lost her, but I want to kind of yeah. like memorialize our relationship. I think um, so. And the movie because it was important. The yeah. movie actually started out not a love story. It started out um, it was like a murder mystery at some point, all sorts of different things. Huh. And then um and then Diane Keaton got involved and he started writing for her and it became this movie. It, it wasn't called Annie Hall. At one point it was called like Annie and Alvy. It was also called something called like Adomenia, which means the the inability to uh, experience pleasure or something like it. So it, it, oh. it changed a lot. And this is where, you know, as an artist, it's a cool, it's his process and his film tricks are cool. But mm-hmm. he is not cool in my book. Yeah. No, that's an interesting subject that comes up in a part of the documentary, which was like, how do you separate art from the artist and can you and and the reality is you can't um i don't think so and so there's a lot of people that you know boycott woody allen movies and say like i can't i can't watch them anymore i won't certainly won't pay for them um as a as a way to like take uh, you know take away some of that power because box office money you know influence fame that's power and so to to continue to view his work then continues to fill the well of power that is his to abuse. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was the best 
best way described as to why you really can't. So when he's dead, we can all go back and yeah. like analyze all of his work and watch his work and talk about his work. But as long as he can profit off of it, Screw him. it's just Even feeding the actors and different crew who have worked with him have donated their money that they made on the film to charities for um, yeah, sexually yeah. abused kids. But you know what? Like that. That's, it, that's all very true, but that's also very recent. And it's um, something that is talked about. Well, I'll just jump right jump in. Right I'm going to go all I'm going to go all over the place because the documentary isn't really linear. OK, you know, every episode kind of covers everything, but hones in on certain things. Um, so just to continue with where what we're talking about, you know, up until 2018, even though these um, allegations of abuse were public, um, even though, well, I'm going to start by reading um, an op-ed that Dylan Farrow, who is uh, Mia Farrow and Woody Allen's adopted daughter, wrote for the LA Times in 2018. So I'll just read this because this is her kind of, basically the letter was about like, why hasn't Me Too affected or toppled Woody Allen. Like all of these big famous dudes have been taken down by this movement. Why not Woody Allen? So this is, these are her words. I have long maintained that when I was seven years old, Woody Allen led me into an attic away from the babysitters who had been instructed never to leave me alone with him. He then sexually assaulted me. I told the truth to the authorities then, and I have been telling it unaltered for more than 20 years. Allen denies my allegations, but this is not a he said, child said situation. Allen's pattern of inappropriate behavior, putting his thumb in my mouth, climbing into bed with me in his underwear, constant grooming and touching was witnessed by friends and family members. At the time of the alleged assault, he was in therapy for his conduct towards me. Three eyewitnesses substantiated my account, including a babysitter who saw Alan with his head buried in my lap after he had taken off my underwear. Alan refused to take a polygraph administered by the Connecticut State Police. In the final legal disposition of the matter, a judge denied him custody of me, writing that, quote, measures must be taken to protect me and that there was no credible evidence that my mother, Mia Farrow, coached me in any way. A prosecutor took the unusual step of announcing that he had probable cause to charge Allen, but declined to do so in order to spare me, a child victim, from an exhausting trial. It is a testament to Allen's public relations team and his lawyers that few people know these simple facts. It also speaks to the forces that have historically protected men like Allen, the money and power deployed to make the simple complicated to massage the story. So that was her op-ed about... Why me too? And it was after that that uh, people started saying, like, I believe you and donating their money, refusing to work with him again, um, you know, publicly saying how sorry they were that they had chosen to just, you know, pretend the story didn't exist since he hadn't been charged criminally with anything. Um, but it was only only after that that people started to 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 kind of say they believed her. And what this documentary at its core is about a young woman who has had to watch the the man who abused her as a child be celebrated her entire life. And that somehow the great work that he makes is more important than she is as a human being. And that as she began to speak out and hear from other survivors, she was like, I can't be quiet anymore. So that's when she started writing essays. Wow. Um, also, you know, her brother, Ronan Farrow, is like the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who broke the Harvey Weinstein story. Oh, really? So, 
Yeah. So he's the one that wrote like the, you know, he investigated for 10 months and he had the big article that came out in the New Yorker that was like, it was him and I think a couple other reporters from the New York Times, but he's, you know, widely credited with breaking that story. Um, And he talks a lot about how even he, when she started talking about wanting to bring this stuff up again, you know, he was like, no, it's been 20 years. Like, we don't want to wade back into all this. You know, like it was such a horrible thing we all went through. And then he, she kept talking about it and kept talking about it. And he agreed to like, look at the actual like case file that existed Mm. and saw all of this evidence that had been collected, you know, and was like, wow, I, somebody who for a living tries to shine light on injustices have been actively turning my back on on a miscarriage of justice in my own family. And then he got involved. Um, but the documentary does start all the way back um, in the time of Annie Hall and in the time of Manhattan and in the time of like Woody Allen at like the height of his, you know, celebratedness. And Mia Farrow was also um, on Broadway at the time. And she was a huge actress. She had done Rosemary's Baby and a couple of other really big movies. And they uh, meet briefly at a restaurant, like just introduce each other. And then she comes with some friends to Woody Allen's New Year's Eve party, which I guess was like this legendary, every famous person, every famous athlete in New York, like they all came to this party every year. And the two just really hit it off. Uh, And the thing is, is that Mia Farrow kind of assumed after her last um, marriage ended, she was married twice, first to Frank Sinatra, and then to Andre Previn, who was a French um, composer. And then after her uh, marriage to Previn ended, they had seven children. And she didn't think that any man would be interested in uh, dating a woman with seven kids. So Did she birth seven children? No. So she had um, Matthew and Sasha Previn were twins that were biological children. Then she adopted Lark Previn. Um, Then she had another biological child, Fletcher. Then she adopted Daisy. And then shortly after adopting Daisy, she adopted Sunyi. Then after that, she adopted Moses. So when she started dating Woody Allen, she had those seven children. She was busy. (laughs) She was a busy lady. Didn't have a lot of time. Um, But they, you know... She said it was a very romantic time. He showed her parts of New York. You know, she was living in New York, but showed her things she'd never seen. He would take her to all these cool spaces. They lived across from each other. So, like, he was on the east side, she was on the west side, or vice versa. And they could see at night, they would flick their lights at each other. That meant, like, I love you. And she said it was, like, a really super romantic time. And, you know, he uh, he was her partner and was around and did become like a father figure to her seven kids. And they all said, you know, he was fun and funny and they're, you know, he was just a great, wonderful presence, especially young, the youngest Moses um, really, really looked up to him. And there's some footage of, you know, he's like doing movie scenes where he's like, you dirty rat. And Woody Allen is like directing him. He's like, do your voice higher, you know, but he seems in these videos, like they seem like a happy little family unit even though he still maintains a separate residence they're not getting married but as you know time is going on um Mia Farrow asks him if he would want to have a baby and he's like as long and this is this is all in her words and I will say that's one thing that I must be said about the documentary while I found it compelling and credible and I believed everything that they put out there it is only from the perspective of um of the pharaohs you know like woody allen the only thing they can get from him is like interview stuff and stuff from an audiobook he wrote like he never he declined 
to be talked to. So it is it is mostly coming from this perspective of the pharaohs only. Um, and he said, well, I would be uh, open to the idea of having kids as long as like my involvement is up to me and that, you know, if I decide I'm not interested in being an involved parent, that you're happy to do it. And she was like, yeah, no, totally. And I was like, what? So why does she want another one? Well, she talks a lot about how when she was a kid, she had polio at like the height of the, you know, when lots of people were being like paralyzed by polio and she went into this hospital and she was surrounded by all of this suffering, including her own. And she somehow managed to like walk out and she knew how how lucky she was and she made a promise to her young self then that you know if she was ever in a position to help someone suffering um Mm. that she should and she would and should do everything that she possibly could to help which is why she you know ended up having 14 children most of whom were adopted but um but she wants to have a biological baby she you know she's in love with woody and so they try and they try and she just can't get pregnant and so she then comes to him she's like well what about if we adopt a baby and he's like well you can adopt a baby and again maybe i'll help you maybe i won't you know i'm woody allen i'm a self-absorbed prick but you know, <laughs> yeah i'm cool if i like the kid maybe i'll maybe i'll step in so she's solo oh and he also says to her because i think this is just interesting and gross but he says and this time i mean why don't you instead of adopting like a, a baby from a foreign country why don't you like try to adopt like a blonde little girl and she's like, okay. Um, and so they adopt on, hold on, I have the dates. So on July 11th of 1985, Dylan is adopted by Mia. And she is a, you know, a beautiful little blonde baby. Mm. And much to everyone's delight, Woody is very taken with her. He finds her adorable. He's, you know, he's very hands-on. He's just, he's completely taken with this little girl. And then shortly after, in 1987, even though they'd had all these problems, Mia gets pregnant with, um, a you know, Woody's baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says in the documentary, Woody really wants a girl. He really wanted a girl. He kept saying that, oh, I hope it's a girl. I hope it's a girl. And was disappointed when it wasn't a girl. It was a boy. Um, Satchel, who will now be referred to from here on out as Ronan, because that's what he goes by, and that's kind of how I know him. Satchel Ronan Farrell was born um, in 1987. And um, it was around this time that Woody started kind of like separating Dylan from the family, like by saying, you know, like, oh, mommy's overwhelmed. She's taking care of the baby. And he was always taking her out of the room and um, – daddy daughter time you know and basically kind of planted the idea according to dylan that you know ronan mia was ronan's parent and he was her parent um and that was you know kind of when the grooming i guess we could call it began and there's all this video of you know he is there you know it's a family so they're all hugging and touching and stuff but he does seem to kind of like it's like he tracks her, you know, and he's always like trying to get his hands on her and she's scrambling away a lot, which is also a sign. Um, so even family members and friends notice that his behavior towards Dylan is is it's it's too like laser focused. It's a little too obsessive. Um, it's not normal behavior. But every time Mia says something to him he like accuse how could you accuse me of being a pedophile you know me i love you like you're crazy if you think i'd be possible like what i'm you know i just out of nowhere became interested in small children and she's like okay no i'm so sorry um in the documentary it's also kind of 
noted that, uh, you know, their personal and professional lives were very intertwined. Like they they made, I think, 13 films together while they were in a relationship. And uh, a lot of people said that he put her down a lot, told her at her age, the only reason she still had a career was because of him. Like nobody else would put her in anything and that, you know, if she... If she needed to be replaced, he could replace her in two seconds. She wasn't that good. You know, like, and he would really kind of, kind of tear her down. And friends say that they actually kind of witnessed that. And she would make up excuses like, well, he's having a bad day for his his mean behavior. Um, and then, let's see, where am I in this storyline? Um, in 1991, she asks if he would like to formally adopt Dylan and Moses, because of all of her adopted children, um, they're the only two that don't have fathers because her previous husband was the was the legal father, Andre Previn, of all of her other children. And so on uh, December 17th of 1991, um, he he adopts them and that's finalized. He becomes the legal father to Moses Pharaoh and to Dylan Pharaoh. Um, And around the same time, there was a renowned, I thought, like, how uncanny. But in the building that um, Mia Farrow has her apartment in New York, there is a renowned psychoanalyst, uh, Dr. Ethel Person is her name. She lives in the building. And she actually ends up calling Mia and saying, I saw the way that Woody greeted your daughter, Dylan, and there is something not right. Oh, with the with the behavior towards her, like as somebody who is, you know, and she was like renowned. So Mia finally feels vindicated that, you know, all of this like weird feeling that she has that she keeps telling her she's crazy. Um, So she convinces Woody to he has to see a therapist about his about his behavior towards Dylan. And he does. And Mia says in the documentary that the therapist told her that his behavior is inappropriate, but that it's not sexual. It could be perceived as sexual by others and even by the child, but it wasn't sexual. What? Which to me doesn't even make sense, but this is what the doctor tells her. So she now feels like a great sense of relief. Like, okay, he's working on his strange tendencies when it comes to her, but it's not sexual. Like now it's, I've been told that by a doctor. Um, that and so she feels very is, yep she feels mm. very relieved yep she feels very relieved and you know is hoping all will just keep going on as it's been going on and with this happy family and on January sorry let me get back to the timeline on January 13th of 1992 Mia goes to Woody's apartment to pick up her son's coat cuz she's not working that day and there she finds a stack of pornographic Polaroids on his desk and is horrified and devastated when she realizes that the girl in the photographs is her oldest daughter, Suni, <gasps> who is uh, a freshman in college. So, of course, she's, you know, absolutely devastated. She runs home. She Suni is home. She says, I found the photos. They both cry. Everyone's crying. Woody comes over and she's like I don't want you here and then he like won't leave and he keeps saying like it was a mistake it was a mistake you know it's just a fling I love you so much I love you so much but clearly as a result of all of this stuff the partnership between the two um broken starts to disintegrate and fall apart even though she actually has to end up finishing like they're in the middle of a movie when she finds out about Suni and she finishes it (sighs) but she says and it's the movie Husbands and Wives which I haven't seen but they showed clips of it and it's all about like 
a, a married couple that's asking some hard questions like and this is what's happening in their life uh so it's just like holy shit <sighs> how did you get through that movie so at this point the family is very torn apart and broken because of the whole Sunni affair the rumor mill you know cuz hollywood and scandal um is just like firestorm firestorm right and so she has this beautiful country home in connecticut that's on like a little lake she takes the kids there and basically because he is the legal father of moses dylan and ronan he is allowed to visit the kids and so with the caveat as i mentioned in her letter that he's not to be alone with with dylan so it's August 4th of 1992, and Alan comes to the cabin. He happens to arrive at a time when the Mia Farrow and her f- girlfriend had gone to the store, but there were three, like, babies. There was, like, the neighbor, the friend who was with Mia's babysitter was there. Her babysitter was there, plus the French tutor that was living with them at the time was there. So there was three babysitters present. And... Uh, Most of the kids are playing outside and Woody arrives and there is basically a a moment where one of the, I think the French, the French tutor is like, where's Dylan? Have you seen Dylan? And then all the babysitters are like, no, I haven't. And they search everywhere for her. They look in every room of the house and 20 minutes goes by and there is no sign of Dylan and there is no sign of Woody. And then Mia gets back from the grocery store and uh, Woody and Dylan come kind of walking around to the front of the house where she's, you know, arriving and she runs into her mom's arms and gives her a hug and Mia and she was wearing this like little sundress and she didn't have any underwear on. <sighs> so then later on that day, Dylan tells her mother what had happened, which was that her dad t- uh, took them up. They had this little attic area. He took her up to the attic and told her, to lay on her stomach very still and to play with her brother's train set. And that um, if she was very good and just laid still and just let him do this, he just needed to do this, that he would take her to Paris. And, um, Ugh, barf. and yeah, and, uh, and put her in all of his movies. So Mia is, you know, obviously like, oh my God. Um, it should be noted that at, at age five, Mia put Dylan in therapy because she had, at one time been a very outgoing, happy little girl. And, you know, around age five became very withdrawn, shy and fearful. So she was seeing a therapist. Um, And in the documentary, it also says that five-year-old Dylan told her therapist on more than one occasion that she had a secret, but she was never able to, like the therapist was never able to get Dylan to disclose the secret. Um, So it's the summertime when this allegation of abuse is made, but her therapist is away. So Mia doesn't know what to do. So she, there's all this like video footage of her, like at the, with all of her kids, she films them all the time. You know, they're very, they make movies and stuff. So she just turns on her camera and she's like, can you tell me again what happened? And so there's like a video of Dylan telling her mom what her dad did to her. And, and so, uh, then they, she goes to a doctor, um, the doctor's like she has to she has to like tell me what happened or there's nothing I can do here. She gets she clams up. The little girl clams up. Doesn't want to say anything. When they leave, she tells her mom it's embarrassing to talk about my privates all the time. Like I don't want to do that. And she's like, okay, well, you know, I we have to tell him what happened to make sure that you're okay. And so they go back the following day. 
She tells the doctor that her dad touched her privates, which, of course, then requires him to contact police. And um, and uh, then. All right. So now. Police are getting involved, right? It is now August 13th of 1992. So that's what, like nine days after the alleged sexual um, assault. And uh, Woody Allen files suit against Mia Farrow for sole custody of their three children, Moses, Dylan, and Ronan, citing uh, parental alienation, which is a, a type of bogus fake science that got a lot of credit at first, where it's, it's the idea that like a mother would turn the children like against the father by like brainwashing them, convincing them that their dad abused them, you know, something that's not really ever done. And if it is done, it's like so rare right. that it's, it's, it's not a scientific thing, but that is like what he cites Ugh. as the reason he's, he's suing her. And then um, on August 17th, so four days after that, Woody Allen and Sunni go public with their relationship. Now, remember, as I said before, that after the affair was discovered, he told Mia Farrow was just a, he didn't love her. It was a mistake. He wanted to make their relationship work. He goes public and very public with this relationship on August 17th, which is actually the same day that the Connecticut State Police announced that they are um, starting an investigation into Dylan's accusations against him. So he gives his press conference, right, on August 18th, but he denies sexually abusing her. He says that it is the act of a vindictive, scorned, hateful woman trying to turn his kids against him, all because he did fall in love with her adult daughter. Ew. And so you can kind of see how he uses oh, C yeah. to to paint Mia as like a woman scorned who would totally coach her daughter to say that he molested her to get back at him for all of this. But it's so, I mean, when you're watching it, you're just like, oh my God, they weren't, Oh, blah, blah, blah. so gross. Um, so they go very, very public. There's a um, then there's going to be like the trial, the custody hearings. He's now saying me as an unfit mother that, you know, she's the one who's abusive and that she's planting all of this like stuff in Dylan's brain and trying to turn her away from him. Um, and then because it's a, a, you know, child sexual abuse case. They in Connecticut, they bring in a uh, Yale New Haven child sex abuse clinic, right? Comes in and for seven months, they investigate these claims. They interview Dylan nine times. They uh, conclude that she had not been molested and that Mia had coached her. And they suggest that Mia get counseling. And then upon delivering the report to Woody Allen, not the police, um, all the notes that the, ther the three different therapists took over all of their sessions are destroyed per protocol, they say. Although every um, every like caseworker or like sexual abuse counselor that they interview in this is like, that would never be he, done. He made never that destroy happen, notes. right? Like he right. Well, that's basically, first of all, you would never interview a small child nine times. Like it's not done. It's cruel. Um, two, the things that they said were like inconsistencies. Or like that, that suggested the coaching, all of the experts that were interviewed in the documentary are like, no, actually what she's doing is this because they can all watch the tape. Um, and the parts where Mia Farrow does kind of seem to be trying to lead her to say like, and then did daddy take off your pants? No. Oh, I thought you said daddy took off your pants. No. You know, and she's like, she won't change her story, like even when her mom at her mom. So they're all saying the way that she tells the story, she's 
quotes him. That's something that kids will do when they're like recollecting something. They'll repeat something that they were told. Um, so they all say that the video is very credible and that uh, there is no evidence of of coaching. Uh, however, with his hands on this report saying that they have concluded that she was never molested, that she was coached, um, he gives another press conference basically saying, I've been exonerated. This whole thing is over. I told you all I'm going to get those I'm going to get custody of those kids and get them away from her. All right. So meanwhile, the Connecticut like state police that's doing the criminal investigation is like, wait, what? Like, we never got the report. We're still doing we're doing a criminal. Like, like we're the police. Like we're the police. Yeah, like they got they got like the fucking forensics people in that house, like in the attic, like fingerprints, DNA, all of it, you know, and they're like. Well, what now he's he's just exonerated himself in the court of public opinion, which, of course, is very frustrating. Um, and Mia Farrow continues to get painted as like a hysterical woman scorned who's just done horrible things to get back at Woody so Allen. not fair. I know. And then this brings us to, OK, so while the it appears at this point that like in Connecticut, the the New Haven sexual abuse clinic has exonerated Woody Allen. Um the state of New York, because that's where they live, was still required to do, you know, an investigation into these allegations of molestation. So a social worker who had been named social worker of the year, Paul Williams, interviewed Dylan one time and insisted that the state open an investigation into the allegations. And we must look further into this. However, the investigation was quickly shut down when higher ups, including allegedly the mayor David Dinkins at the time, denied his repeated requests to open this investigation. Then the um, Paul Williams, the social worker, is fired for insubordination. And when he was confronted by a reporter after being fired, Paul said, I did my job and I believe the kid. So he is then like the courts get involved on, I'm sure, on his side. He is basically rehired, given back pay, but never able to get the investigation into these allegations through. And one of the things that they mentioned, and this I just thought was interesting, is when you think of like New York, especially in this time period, you know, Woody Allen was like synonymous oh, with yeah. New York. He made he made all of his films exclusively in New York. He brought so the revenue that he single handedly brought to the city is um, yep. the argument that some would make that higher ups would do anything that they could to like shut this shit down and help keep him safe. And he probably convinced them. Um, he was probably like, I I would never do that. I'm sure he yeah, of course not. got I'm a hold sure of them, too, you, know? you know? And so, so they say there was a cover up in New York to never investigate. But, sorry, I've got my two notes here. <laughs> Let me get the dates here. So on June 8th, of 1993, the courts award sole custody, so they have this horrible custody thing going on, of Moses Dillon and Ronan to Mia Farrow. <sighs> and not only do they give her sole custody, but but Woody Allen is denied visitation rights to see Dillon. Oh, thank God. I ever. honestly didn't a, know, yeah. and I was, like, getting nauseous over here. I'm like, no, protect yeah. kids. God damn it, please. I know. So she does win cu- the custody um, battle. He Woody Allen appeals twice, but... He's never successful. And then on September 25th of 1993, Frank Mako, who is the Connecticut state's attorney, holds a press conference um, saying that based on all of the evidence collected at the house in Connecticut, um, the prosecutors found probable cause to charge Woody Allen with sexual assault. But he opts not to, to 
to arrest him and go to trial. And the quote from the documentary was, my concern was the further traumatization of the child. She had already been through so much, and was it truly in her best interest to put her on the stand? Mm. He decided ultimately no. He made this decision after having a meeting with her where she never – she. She never spoke once. Like he would, he said it was all, it was like one of those child friendly rooms with a female in the room. He was, they were down on the ground playing. She wouldn't speak. She wouldn't look at him. He asked her once about it and she just like shut down completely. And he was like, this is the, the this is my, the star of the trial if we do this. And so he chooses not to. Um, and, you know, it's still a horrible situation, but life kind of seems to go back to normal. He is out of their lives. Um, but Dylan is like a very, um, withdrawn teenager. She, she has a hard time, like she doesn't really have relationships. Um, but they don't really talk about it either. She says like, she never talked about it with her siblings. Um, they just, it's like, they are all trying to pretend it didn't happen. Um, and Mia Farrow was just, I think, happy to have like the circus and like the scrutiny and the hounding of her kids or her whole family. Just, she just was glad to have the spotlight off of them. Even though, you know, she was like, if, if you know, if the, if the guy had wanted to prosecute, they would have cooperated, obviously. Yeah. But she was, she was okay with his decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of a thing that comes back because Dylan blames herself for being too weak to stand up for herself at seven years old. But then says, you know, I was seven years yeah. old. You know, like I, I'm standing up for that seven year old girl now and all the other seven year old girls out there. Oh my God. That makes me so sad. I know it's really, really frustrating. So basically, you know, Dylan lives like a, a really anonymous life. She goes under a different name. Um, and she, she gets married and she has a kid eventually, but on at the golden globes in 2014, Woody Allen is, um, receives the Cecil B. DeMille Lifetime Achievement Award. And he he's not there to accept it. So Diane Keaton of Annie Hall accepts it on his behalf. And she's, you know, just giving like a glowing thing. And then they cut to other actresses. I think it's Emma Stone saying, you know, like such a genius. And, um, you know, Dylan's like watching this and all of a sudden like has to change the channel. And then there were two very famous tweets. So her mom famously tweeted, turning off the Golden Globes, going to check out the latest episode of Girls. But Ronan tweeted, sorry, let me get that one. Missed the Woody Allen tribute. Did they put the part where a woman publicly confirmed he molested her at age seven before or after Annie Hall? Like, and just puts that out into the world. And there's, um, you know, like a lot of people are like, whoa. And there's a, and then Dylan writes an essay um, that's published on a blog of a New York Times reporter in 2014. And it kind of starts with like, what's your favorite Woody Allen movie? Wait, before you answer that. And then she tells her story. And then at the end says, okay, so what's your favorite Woody Allen movie? Like, cause wow. that's, it's like, you know, but there's a lot of backlash. This is where people come to his defense. This is where everybody's like, no, or actors are saying like, we, nobody really knows the truth about the situation. Like it's, you know, how, how can we judge something we don't know? And this is like publicly people are standing up for him. Um, and this is also kind of around the same time that like people can't believe that Michael Jackson actually molested kids or that Bill Cosby was a rapist, you know, because they have like psychiatrists and psychologists on there. Like, you know, people, that they form attachments to movie stars and TV stars sure. in similar ways that they form attachments to family members. And so it's like impossible it's easier for people to believe 
that this allegation is the result of Mia Farrow being so pissed off about the Sunni affair that she convinced her daughter she had been molested and then coached her on how to make an accusation, that that's easier to believe for the people who love Woody Allen than that that Woody Allen could be a child abuser. Um, and so she she gets a lot of, like, there's a lot of backlash. And it's interesting, like, in the letter of the 2014 essay, she even says, like, what if it was your daughter, Kate Blanchett, or what if it was you, Emma Stone, or you, Scarlett Johansson? And she's like, Diane Keaton, you know me. You, we, you know, we hung out a lot as uh, when I was a little girl. Like, have you forgotten me? Um, and it's very, like, and so it's hard to imagine what? that that received exactly. backlash. It's just so messed up. Oh. But it's so interesting. So cut to 2017 when her brother breaks the Harvey Weinstein story. And all of a sudden, woman after woman after woman after woman is coming forward. Um, and being believed, right? And all of a sudden, you know, like really powerful men are being silenced. And Dylan is convinced, you know, like her story has been out there as well. And she's like, but people will not or not. Nothing's happening. And that's when she wrote that letter for the L.A. Times that said, why hasn't the Me Too Time's Up movement toppled Woody Allen? Um, and really, it was only after that essay that. Um, actresses and actors started coming forward, say, apologizing to Dylan, saying that they would never work with him again. Um, he lost out. Uh, there was like a, a multi-million dollar picture deal with Amazon that died as a result of this. His um, his last film, like Rainy Day, a rainy day in New York, um, sat on the shelves uh, and was never released in the United States. Eventually, they were like exiled, and he's. They now live in uh, Europe, where he's still making movies and doing quite well for himself. That same movie that was shelved here was not uh, shelved internationally and grossed twenty two million dollars. Um, but it was only after the Me Too movement that her allegations anybody believed her were somehow taken. For people outwardly said, like, there's a, a great clip of Natalie Portman's on like a CBS morning show with a bunch of other actresses. And they're kind of talking about it. And she just says, I just want to say that I believe Dylan. And then she's like, and she looks in the camera and she goes, I believe you, Dylan. Oh. And then it's like everyone starts believing her. And she said that each each person that came out in support um, was the greatest gift that helped her get back some of her self-worth. That for so long, what happened to her was less important than the work her father did. Um, and, you know, she's, she has a little girl, which she said she was thrilled, but also, of course, you know, makes any parent always, you know, nervous, especially one who's been the victim of this. But she said the greatest gift that she's given her daughter is that her daughter has a wonderful father. Mm. And, you know, there's other stuff in the documentary, too, that I could go into, but this will be like a five hour <laughs> uh, long episode. Yeah. But so that's, you know, for me, even though I have I do feel like it's only fair to say that, like, the other side was not you know, was never got to like speak on their behalf. Um, the evidence shown was very compelling. Yeah. Um, the trauma seems very real. And uh, just the fact, you know, e in and of itself, the fact that he was forced to see a psych, uh, like a psychiatrist. Right. In the beginning, like when. To help because his behavior towards this little girl was so inappropriate and so obsessive and so bizarre and frightening that he had to see someone about it who did say it was inappropriate behavior, but just to said it wasn't sexual. Um, it just feels impossible, you know, that 
that there was not some form of abuse happening right. there. Right. Oh my god. So I'm I'm gonna end this by saying that I too believe you, Dylan. I too believe you. It makes me sad, actually. I really want to cry. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's it's very, it's very sad, yeah. and it's also just it's such an interesting look at the power of celebrity and like, you know, the the way that he was able to do things that you shouldn't be able to do, like stop investigations, like the that um. New Haven, like sexual abuse clinic, like thank God for that judge that gave her custody of their kids because he said that he found the um, their report to be unconvincing and he questioned the methods that they used while talking to the child. Like he, he I don't, I mean, I, he must have been like independently wealthy or like really hated Woody Allen movies or something. But like the <laughs> fact that that he saw, you know, he saw it for what it was. That's why he not only didn't give Woody custody but he wouldn't even give him the right to visit dylan ever good wow well wonderful yeah. i mean wonderful job covering this ever and it's i would not have been able to do the crime section on this so i appreciate you doing that and I, yes. for me you know annie hall uh i will say uh you know diane keaton was is a lovely actress uh you know but besides that it just made my skin crawl and I yep. didn't even know as much as what, you know, I kind of let you tell me a story because I wanted to hear it from you instead of doing pre-research. But I will say I didn't know much about it until that 2018 story came out. I didn't know anything about it. I only knew about the Sunni scandal. Right. And that's, I mean, that's such a thing they talk about, right? But everybody knows that Woody Allen left Mia Farrow for her adopted daughter, right? Yeah. But she was legally an adult um, at the time their affair was discovered, although there's you know, been allegations that they actually started their sexual affair when she was a senior in high school and people testified to that. And I'm sure. I mean, he's had hearing. younger women. So, yeah. And so um, but he basically weaponized. Yeah, he weaponized his affair with Sunni to distract from the allegations of abuse. And so and they're still a, married, right? Brilliant. They're still married with two daughters. Ugh. They have two adopted daughters. Careful people. Oh. Who fiercely stand by their college age girls and they they stand by their dad. Um, which, I mean, again, we, nobody knows people like the inner workings of people's family lives. And so I, I hope and pray for those two daughters of his that they had a wonderful life and that nothing bad happened to them. Um, but yeah, they're still married. Um, they both declined to be part of the documentary. There was a something came out, I think, in 2020 or 2019 where like it was a profile on Sunni who's famously like never said anything about them. And she came out like staunchly defending her husband and saying that all of the abuse allegations were her mom trying to get back at him. Um, but you know, it's interesting. Yeah. There's only, there's two children that, so Sunni obviously married Woody Allen and then Moses, the, um, the other child that he adopted when he adopted Dylan um, has broken away from the pharaohs and sides with his dad and there's no yeah, i can't he really wants find money it. from his dad i'm sure well i can't really find like a reason for it you know like he's a he's a psychologist he works in um it's a very it's it's a very like specific type of child psychology it's like transracial adoption huh. so like children he's from i think i believe he was from korea so like children who are from other countries were adopted by like white parents that like that experience is unique. Right. And he's comes from a large family where there was many children from foreign countries adopted yeah. and raised by white parents. Um, and so he, that's what he does for a living. So it just seems weird as a child psychologist that he doubts 
the validity of his sister's story. Um, and he also alleges that Mia Farrow was very abusive. So I don't know what happens with the with the inner workings of people's minds. But, you know, it's tragic. It's yeah. a tragic story. Here's our rum crime for you this week. Yeah. My goodness. That's a, a doozy. But thank you guys for going on this journey with us. Don't check out any of Woody Allen's movies ever again, but feel free to check out this documentary. Um, if you're at all interested, there's a lot, a lot of stuff in there that I wasn't able to include for fear of yep. being here all day. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, thank you guys. We will talk to you next week. Yeah, bye. We hope you enjoy our podcast. If you do like it, please rate, review, and subscribe to Rom Crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can follow Rom Crime on all social media platforms and send us messages for things you'd like us to cover in the future. You can also email us at romcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Join us for bonus content exclusively on Patreon. We'll see you next Friday for another Rom Crime with Avrin and Vanya. Produced, directed, researched, and edited by us. Till next week.